Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover Galatians 4, verses 21 through 31. I'm going to call this section, Hagar and Sarah as Law and Promise. We're continuing with the theme of Galatians, which is that we're free from the law, the promise, the promise, grace, freedom from the law, as opposed to law, flesh, the Mosaic law leads to death and slavery. Of course, Paul in Galatians is fighting the Judaizers, the legalists, who have come in and tried to spy out the freedom of the Galatians and tried to enslave them again. In the first part of Galatians 4, Paul has talked about being a son and an heir. He's talked about not being enslaved to the elementary principles of the law. And then he's told the Galatians how much he cares for them. What are you doing, guys? And that's kind of, that's, that is our context here as we go to Galatians 4, starting in verse 21. Tell me, Paul says, those of you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? Now that word here in the NIV is translated as this. Are you not aware of what the law says? Don't you hear and understand the law, in other words? Now Paul is pointing out an irony here. You guys who want to be under the law, you don't understand what the law says. As John Gill says, don't you understand that you're condemned by the law and not justified by it? Don't you hear the law? It's death, 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 death. And you don't understand that. John Gill says, another option is, don't you understand the promise in Abraham, which is enjoyed by faith, not law? Now, the promises of Abraham were in the Pentateuch, but they weren't in the, the Mosaic law. They were before the Mosaic law in Genesis, not Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Well, if you take that option, you have to take law as referring to the, the whole Torah, not just the part of the Sinaitic law. And that's reasonable. John Gill suggests that as an option. Don't you understand the promise to Abraham, which is by faith? Jameson Fawcett Brown says, don't you understand that the law itself contains types and prophecies that lead to Christ? You know, the whole tabernacle is about the heavenly tabernacle. talked about in Hebrews as a fulfillment of that Old Testament law. So, Paul says, if you're ignoring Christ by keeping the Mosaic law, you're not really hearing the law. Look at all those types of the law that refer to Christ. Well, I think it's much easier just to say what John Gill's first option was. Don't you understand you're being condemned by the law, and yet you, you think you're being free by being in the, under the law? What's your problem? Galatians 4, verses 22 and 23, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born according to the impulse of the flesh while the one by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. So there's your contrast again. This time it's flesh and promise. Flesh, you might as well say, is synonymous with law, because when you try to keep the law, you're using your flesh. So flesh and law against promise. Promise is just another synonym for grace, because it was a gift. It was promised to you. Now, it was written in the scripture. It's talking about the story of Sarah and Hagar. Abraham had two sons, one, that's Ishmael, by a slave, Hagar, and the other by a free woman. The free woman is Sarah, and the other son was Isaac. The one by the slave, that's Hagar, was born according to the impulse of the flesh. The reason was Abraham had received a promise for offspring when he was 75 years old. He was now roughly 86 or so, maybe 85, somewhere around there, 10, 11 years later. He hadn't had a son yet, and he's saying, God, God, where's the promise? Where's your promise? You promised me offspring. As soon as I set foot in this land in Genesis 12, you said, my offspring is going to cover the land. Where are they? Genesis 15, you repeated that promise. You're going to give me an offspring. Where are they? So he and Sarah got together and said, well, let's just, you know, get a, get a concubine and get her pregnant, and that'll be the inheritance from God. Well, that's not supernatural. That's just going out and having sex. That's being born of purely natural processes that everybody's born with. And God wasn't going to let the descendants come through Hagar, through that fleshly uh, activity. 
The one, the son that was born by the free woman, that was Isaac, was born as a result of a promise, which we'll read. That's in Genesis 17, when God came to Abraham and and Sarah and said, you're going to have a son this time next year, and his name's going to be Isaac. So that's the background. Let me, I've, I've given you a summary just in my words. Let me read some scripture. Genesis 16, 15. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son Hagar had. So Ishmael, and that was eight, 14 years before Isaac was born. Abraham was 86 when Ishmael was born. The other, the other uh, woman that had a baby, or excuse me, the other son of the free woman, the other son was Isaac. He was born to the free woman, Sarah. This is in Genesis 21, verses 2 through 5. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the appointed time, God had told him. That was in Genesis 17. God had told him that next year you're going to have a kid. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah born to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now that's why it's the child of promise, because Abraham was so old, he's too old to be having kids. Sarah was 90, or 91, as we'll see, when she had the baby, about 90 years old or so when the promise was made. That's pretty old to be having kids, so that has to be, that can't be for the flesh, because the flesh is dead by that, that age. Where does it say that in the New Testament somewhere, Abraham's flesh being as good as dead, I think that's in Hebrews, it was dead, it was too old to have, be having children, but God promised him a child anyway, because he's going to fulfill his, promise, his promises. His covenant promises would not fail. And he wasn't going to fulfill his promises in an ordinary flesh way, but like going out and having sex with a concubine. That's too easy. He's going to do it by faith, by Abraham's faith and trust and a promise that God had given him. Now, Paul says it is written in the scriptures, and he, and he uses scriptural historical facts to create an allegory. This is, I've heard it said that this is the only allegory, the allegory of Hagar and Sagar that's in the Bible. Other people say that the parables are allegory. Allegory is defined sort of loosely. I know in Chinese, I was trying to explain to Chinese Christian one time the difference between an allegory and a parable. Oh, my, they only had one word for it. Be you. I remember the word because it was so hard to describe. I couldn't make distinctions between parable and allegory. And finally, I just gave up. Well, it's hard in English, too. So let me try to see if I can make some distinctions. To show how loose it is, gotquestions.org, which is a conservative evangelical website, calls the parables allegories. Well, I don't call the parables allegories. I think there's a difference. But the words are kind of loose. It could be that Paul was using the weapons of his antagonist. The Judaizers may have been using subtle, mystical, allegorical interpretations, Kabbalah stuff, you know. Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggests that. Well, if they were, those allegories weren't sanctioned by the Holy Spirit. This allegory is sanctioned by the Holy Spirit because it was given by an inspired apostle. So we need to distinguish good allegories from bad allegories. Usually allegory is a bad word because when people take allegories, they make the text mean something it never was intended to be meant, and they come up with these fanciful stories and come up with these these dumb-headed doctrines and, and often dangerous doctrines. And in fact, the whole early church was cursed with this allegorical method. The, Augustine was famous for it. The great Augustine even got ensnared in this, and that was one of the blessings of the protestant reformation that they came up with a grammatical historical view of interpretation of the bible which means that you interpret the scriptures according to the genre that it was written in according to the intent of the author and that's extremely important as far as hermeneutics as far as interpretation of the scripture is so we got to be careful we're not talking about spiritualizing the scripture and making it say whatever the heck we want to the allegorical method of interpretation has been the bane of hermeneutics, the bane of biblical interpretation, all the way up to the time of the Protestant Reformation, when the Reformation came up with a literal or the grammatical 
historical historical grammatical interpretation of the scripture in which you in, in which you interpret the scripture according to the literary genre that it was written in now of course the famous example of the allegorical method of interpretation is Augustine his interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan which one internet writer I read said has become the whipping boy for those who oppose the allegorical interpretation well let me whip that interpretation right now I, I admire Augustine don't get me wrong you read his stuff on predestination it's wonderful he's you know he was a great guy but boy oh boy he was bad on this allegorical business here's how he interpreted the parable of the good Samaritan the Samaritan is Jesus the animal that Jesus that the Samaritan was riding on is the flesh of Jesus the flesh of Christ the man who got beat up the man coming down from Jericho that was Adam the robbers were Satan and his minions the end that the good Samaritan was taken to is the church and the innkeeper is the apostle I don't know which apostle but you see what I'm saying that's obviously nonsense it has nothing to do that's not how you interpret the parable of the good Samaritan so we're not talking about the bad kind of allegory. We're talking about a special type of allegory here that Paul's using. Now let's let's make some distinctions here. Typically, an allegory uses non-historical events to illustrate a point. Now, in the case of the Good Samaritan, that was non-historical, and so that would not distinguish a parable from an allegory. But notice that Paul is using historical events. He's using the historical event of Sarah and Hagar, Ishmael and Isaac. He's not making up a story, if you will, to prove a point, like the parable of the Good Samaritan was. How about Pilgrim's Progress? All of that's obviously not historical. So that's one big distinction right there. Another big distinction is that Paul's allegory of Hagar and Sarah used events which did not have any connection with the truths that were being taught. Paul was trying to teach the truth of freedom and the superiority of the promise versus the slavery and inferiority of the law. That had nothing to do with Abraham getting a girl pregnant, getting a concubine pregnant. So Paul, in other words, loosely used the historical events to, to prove his point. But if you look at a parable, they're very closely related. You know, you didn't receive my son, we'll come back, back and burn your city down. Those events were closely tied to what the parable's trying to teach. Well, here they're not tied at all. So that's another distinction. So anyway, let me summarize this this thing about allegory and about how we've got to be careful. John Gill says, quote, Neither he, referring to Paul, nor we have anything further to do with this allegory than as it applies to the subject for what it is quoted. In other words, we're not going to make up stories about Hagar and Sarah that have anything to do except with law versus promise. That's it. Nothing else. Nor does this parable, nor does this allegory that Paul has give any license to those men of vain and superficial minds who endeavor to find out allegories in every portion of the sacred writings, and by what they term spiritualizing, which is more properly carnalizing, have brought the testimonies of God into disgrace. May the spirit of silence be poured out upon all such corruptors of the word of God. And that's the truth, man. You've got to avoid allegorical interpretation like the plague. There's two things I don't like about theologians. I don't like literary theologians, when I, allegorizing theologians who use their literary minds, their creative minds to come up with all kind of nonsense that the Bible never taught. And I also don't like theologians that are like creative accountants. Creative accountants will end up bankrupt and in jail. And these people who come up with new theology, and I, I'm not against new theology that's based on the Scripture, because you have to, you know, always reforming, reformed and always reforming and all that. I agree with that. But on the other hand... I'm very careful of people who get so creative that they get outside the bonds of Scripture. At any rate, enough of that rabbit trail. 
let's just very quickly talk about who Hagar represents. She represents the legalizers, the Judaist, the Judaizers, the legalist, the people who were enslaved because she had a slave son, and that's so that's appropriate. And who does Isaac represent? Isaac represents the result of a promise that God made. That's in Genesis 12. Excuse me. Well, actually, God made promise to offspring in general to Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and in Genesis 17, he made a specific. He made a specific promise that Isaac was going to be born. So there's promise. So let's read in Genesis 12, 4 through 7. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. That's in Syria. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. That was when Abram was 75 years old. Then later on in Genesis 15, I'm not going to quote that, he was also promised land again. And then in Genesis 17, verses 1a, 16 and 19, we can read very quickly here how the specific promise was given to Abraham about the specific son, the specific offspring, the specific seed, the specific descendant, Isaac. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, verse 6, that was verse 1, verse 16, I will bless her, that's referring to Sarah, and she shall become nations, kings of people shall come from her, verse 19. God said, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. So you see the scripture very clearly says, promise, 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 I promise you. Now Sarah was 90 or 91 years old when Isaac was born. How do we know that? This is a little bit interesting. Genesis 17, 17. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who was 100 years old? And verse 1 said he was 99, as I just read. And so he's referring to the next year he's going to be 100 years old. God later on in, in the chapter said, Next year you're going to have a son. So that, and Abraham said, A son at 100, really? And he laughed. And then shall Sarah, who was 90 years old, bear a child. Now, some people say that's referring to Sarah, who was 90 years old right now, when Abram was 99 years old. And that means she was 100 the next year. Excuse me, she was uh, 91 the next year. Or it could be, shall Sarah, who was 90 years old, at the time she bears the child, bear a child. It's ambiguous. I looked it up in J.P. Green's literal translation. Let me me read that. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and he said in his heart, Shall one be born to a son of a hundred years, and shall Sarah bear a daughter of 90 years? A daughter of 90 years when? When Abraham laughed in the previous year or in the next year when she bore Isaac. It's not clear. So some people say 90, some people say 91. We don't know. But the point is, is they were too old to be having kids. And that means that it has to be miraculous. It has to be from the spirit to have a kid. It can't be from the flesh. It can't be from natural processes of the flesh. And that, of course, is designed to teach us something. How many times have you heard people say, well, that was an Ishmael in my ministry. You're trying to do something from God. Your motives are pure. You want to help him. But you rely on your own strength, your own smarts, your own organizational ability, your own intellectual ability, your own oratorical ability, whatever it is, you're lying on your flesh and it falls completely flat and you make an ass out of yourself and people are upset with you and nothing happens and you don't do anything for God. Well, you learn. That was an Ishmael. But then when you do things by the Spirit, which is usually not according to what the flesh would think, it's something usually a little bit supernatural, a little bit off the beaten path, not according to the normal ways of the flesh, that's because God has promised you that he's going to bless that ministry. Well, that's a whole different thing. That's, that's where you have success. Paul talks about this idea of Isaac being a child of promise and Christians being the ch- children of promise. Romans 9, 8 through 9. It is not the children by physical descent who are God's children. That means physical descent of Abraham, Jews, 
They are not God's children necessarily, he means. But the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. So there's your fulfillment. The fulfillment of the promise of seed and offspring to, to Abraham was fulfilled not in a physical nation of Israel, not in physical genetic Jews, but in people who believe, including Jews, including Gentiles, including everybody. But it's a spiritual fulfillment, and Paul clearly says that in Romans 9, 8. Romans 9, 9, for this is the statement, this is the statement of, the, of the promise, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Now that's quoting Genesis 17, 19 that I just read to you, and notice that that physical activity of having a son is fulfilled by Paul in the whole Gentile church, or not just the Gentile church, in the whole church which includes the Gentiles. Children of the promise, which includes believing Jews, of course. Now, when Paul says in Romans 9, 8, and 9, these are the children of the promise, he's not referring to the famous, not directly referring to the famous covenant promise to Abraham that, that Abraham would have many descendants and blessings to the world. He's more particularly referring to the promise to give Abraham and Sarah a child in Genesis 17, 19. You shall have a son next year, and you shall name him Isaac. But it's all part of the same promise, really. It's just more particular. We go now to Galatians 4, verses 24 and 25. These things are illustrations. What things? The birth of Ishmael, the birth of Isaac, the birth of Ishmael from Hagar, the birth of Isaac through Sarah. These things are illustrations. For the women represent the two covenants. What two covenants? The old covenant, that's Moses' covenant, and the new covenant, that's Jesus' covenant. One is from Mount Sinai. That's the old covenant. That's the Mosaic covenant. That's Hagar's covenant, if you will. It bears children unto into slavery. This is Hagar. You want to be a child of Hagar? Well, then you, by definition, you're a slave. You want to be a child of the law? You're a slave. Hey, legalists. Hey, Judaizers. You want to be slaves? You're trying to t make my Galatian children into slaves? Well, this is what happens. Verse 25. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Arabia, that's the famous Arabian desert down there. Corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. The present Jerusalem, of course, is the old rabbinic apostate order that killed Jesus, apostate from Moses, the rabbinic Jerusalem that added all the evil oral traditions to the Mosaic law. She is in slavery. Now, Paul knew all about that because he used to be a part of that. He used to be a slave along with all of his fellow Jews, the Jews that he would give his own salvation for he loved so much. He knows they are slaves. Agar is a slave. He doesn't want his Galatian churches to be slaves. We go now to Galatians 4, verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So there's your contrast. There's Mount Sinai and Hagar on one side, and representing slavery. And on the other side is Sarah. Right, I guess you could put it this way. Hagar and her son Ishmael and Mount Sinai, law, slavery. On the other hand is Sarah, Isaac, promise, heavenly Jerusalem, Jerusalem above freedom and she is our mother remember back then they would say the daughters of a city is the population of a city like the daughters of jerusalem oh daughters of jerusalem it means the population of jerusalem well the jerusalem above is the heavenly jerusalem and we're are the and we christians populate it we are the population because we're the daughters of that city so she's our mother now the jerusalem above as my niv study bible and john gill point out by the rabbis it was held that the Jerusalem above was the heavenly archetype that was to be let down to earth. And this was going to happen during the Messianic period, of which, of course, Paul's in right now as he writes this. He's a rabbi. He knows these, these terminologies. So when he says Jerusalem above, he's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem that's going to come down on the earth and spread a whole different kingdom. Of course, the Jews thought that hadn't happened yet. Paul knew it had happened yet because Jesus had come. We read about this 
heaven, heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, above as in heaven, heavenly Jerusalem, Jerusalem above. Hebrews 12:22. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festive gathering. Now, when the author of Hebrews is talking about coming to Mount Zion, Mount Zion is a symbol of the church. Mount Zion is Old Testament terminology referring to the typical terminology referring to the anti-typical terminology of the church. So Mount Zion refers to the church. So the church is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So the church is the, the church, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above. Now, I deliberately quoted the Jerusalem above scriptures that obviously refer to the church first because now I want to go to where you normally hear about the new Jerusalem, and that's in the book of Revelation. Revelation 3.12, The victor, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. Ooh, the Jerusalem above. Well, now, I just finished saying that in Galatians 4.26, that obviously refers to the church, the Jerusalem above. The Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven, as the rabbis put it. That's the Jerusalem above. That's the church. And in Hebrews 12, 22, you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem which is above, which is the church. So why is why would you think that John in Revelation 3, 12, when he says the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes out of heaven, why would that not be the church? Well, in my humble opinion, that's exactly what it is because I'm an Orthodox preterist and I'm not brainwashed by futurist ideology, which goes by the name of theology, which just instinctively and reflexively takes new heaven, the new Jerusalem to refer to things which come at the final state. No. Compare Scripture with Scripture. The new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem which comes down from above, interpret it like the rabbis did. And, of course, John has more Old Testament interpretations. He was Jew to the, up to his eyeballs. He was Jewish. He's familiar with that type of terminology. He's talking about the Messianic age, which happened when Jesus came at the first coming, not the second coming. Revelation 21, 2. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. There's the Jerusalem above again, just like Paul says in Galatians 4. The Jerusalem above is free. John says in Revelation 21, I saw the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Well, now tell me, who's the bride of Christ? You've read Ephesians 5, talk about the bride of Christ. Well, that's common. We all know that to be the church. So why is it in Revelation 21, 2, we assume that this New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven it's talking about the future state instead of the church. I believe in Revelation, the new covenant, the Revelation is talking about the new covenant from first advent of Christ all the way until the final state until eternity. It's not talking about the coming for Jesus' second coming to eternity. It's talking about Jesus' first coming to eternity. It might include some t events at the end, back at the end of the book. But most of what it's talking about is happened, was happening, preparing the early disciples for the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But that's a little theological rabbit trail. We won't go any further, but I love that. The Jerusalem above, the new Jerusalem. It's the church, folks. Galatians 4.27, For it is written, Rejoice, childless woman who does not give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate are many, more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. Now, again, this is a Jewish quote. This is from Isaiah 54, verse 1. I'll read Isaiah. Rejoice, childless one who did not give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the forsaken one will be more than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. So it's a pretty close quote. Now, Isaiah, I'm not going to get into a whole long spiel about what Isaiah meant. I'm assuming he meant this. Rejoice, childless one who did not give birth. He's talking about the exiles who he's prophesied are going to go into exile either it, 
after in, in the Assyrian exile or the Babylonian exile. I'm not sure which. But rejoice because you're in exile and you don't give birth in the exile. When you're in exile, you're forsaken. But guess what? You're going to come back. And then you're going to have more children than the children of the married women, the married women who stayed behind that didn't get taken into exile, whoever that might be. That's roughly what it is. And basically, it's talking about people who didn't have, will have. Now, the NIV Study Bible says that Isaiah means here, rejoice, childless one, exile Jerusalem, people who are in Jerusalem, because the exiled people are going to get joy. They're going to have more children than the people who weren't exiled. Now, we have to remember, too, that having children was one of the most wonderful, joyous events for Jewish women. They felt like they were cursed if they didn't have children. And that's because population was low back then. They needed children to keep the chosen race going, especially with high mortality, infant mortality rates. In some way, we don't think that way today. But to have a child would be joyous. All right, now, that's what the context is in Isaiah. How does Paul use that to refer to the situation in his day? Well, he spiritualizes the verse, quote-unquote, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. He's not talking at all about the exiled Jerusalem and the restored Jerusalem like as Isaiah was. He's talking about the Gentiles. He's saying the Gentiles are the childless women who do not give birth. They're the sad people. They didn't have the oracles of God. They didn't have any way of salvation. But now they need to burst forth and shout and joy because now they have the promise. They have Christ. Now the children of the desolate are many more numerous. In other words, now they're more Gentile believers than those of the woman who has a husband. That's talking about the Jews who didn't believe in Christ. They have their husband. They've got the Old Testament laws, and they've got the Pharisees' laws. They've got all that. They're married to that old Jewish system. But guess what? The Gentiles are more numerous than they are now, and they're more happy than they are now because they believe in Christ. But these non-believing Jews don't believe in Christ. And so they are not so happy anymore. Now when I said that Paul spiritualized the verse, I know that's a dirty word. But remember, he's using an allegory, but the allegory is tightly controlled to refer only to one thing. The contrast between children of the flesh, slaves, children of Hagar, children of the law, children who of Mount Sinai, as opposed to children of the promise, the children of Sarah, the, the descendants of Isaac, the children of the promise, the believers, the spiritual believers. And remember, the distinction is not an ethnic distinction between Jew and Gentile. It's a distinction between non-believing Jews and believing Jews, or non-believing Jews and believing Jews and Gentiles. It's a spiritual distinction, not ethnic. Adam Clark agrees with me on this interpretation of the allegory. The woman who has a husband is the Jewish state with the law, as Clark says, and the children who, the, the woman who was not, who was desolate, but now will give birth. The children of the desolate are the, are the women who didn't give birth, but now give birth to have a lot of of children, that refers to the church, as Adam Clark says. We go to Galatians 4, verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Paul says that again in Romans 3, 29. Or is God for Jews only? Is he not also for Gentiles? Yes, for Gentiles too, Romans 9, 8. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. Children of the promise, and again, the promise was to Abraham, and we, like Abraham believes it's reckoned to him as faith. We Gentiles believe it's reckoned to us as faith, or we believe, or we fleshly Jews believe it's reckoned to us as faith, and now we're in the kingdom. That's, that's what the promise is, the blessing that's going to go to all the nations of the world. Now, when Paul says children of the promise, like I mentioned this earlier, it could be children of all, the promise of offspring in general that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, or it could be the promise 
that God made to Abraham in Genesis 17 of a particular offspring, Isaac. So Isaac is a physical child of promise. Christians are, a, are spiritual children of promise. And the spiritual trumps the physical. That's the most important thing. The type is not more important than the anti-type. The spiritual is more important than the physical. The physical is not more important than the spiritual. Let me read Romans 9, 8 again. It is not children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise. In other words, you can't say, I'm a Jew, therefore I'm going to heaven. You can't do that. You have to believe in Christ. Children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. Galatians 4.29, But just as then the child born according to the flesh persecuted the one born according to the Spirit, so also now. And of course, Paul is referring to the persecution that legalists and Judaizers have always perpetrated on the church of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is referring to specific historical instances here of when Isaac persecuted, excuse me, when Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Child born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted the one born according to the Spirit, that was Isaac. And that's happening today. Now, he's referring, as far as in Paul's day, he was referring to how the legalists were persecuting Paul. It is a fact of history that there were only two places that the Jews didn't attack Paul in his ministry as he went to try to convince Jews of the gospel message. Philippi and Ephesus were the only two places where the Jews didn't come after Paul. In Philippi and Ephesus, Paul was attacked, but only for pecuniary reasons, for financial reasons. But for religious reasons and every other place, he was attacked by the Jews. And so he's saying, well, you know, I'm preaching the promise. I'm preaching the spirit. The people of the Jews are preaching the flesh. They're preaching slavery, and so they persecute me. And this illustrates the point is that flesh and spirit have nothing to do with each other. They will persecute each other till, till the cows come home, and they're never going to stop. When did Isaac become persecuted by Ishmael? Well, we can read in Genesis 21.1, The Lord came to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah... That's not the verse I want. Genesis 21, 8 and 9. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham held a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son mocking the one Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham, Ishmael, was mocking Isaac on the day the little boy was weaned. You know, they were going to fight over who's going to get the inheritance, and you know how that is. So there's your persecution. Paul uses the historical fact of the persecution of Ishmael against Isaac. He uses that to show that the flesh will always persecute the spirit even now as Christians go about doing their work of the kingdom. Legalists are never, ever content to be legalists by themselves. They are compelled to come after those who aren't legalists. They tell spiritual people, hey, you guys are antinomian. You're against the law. You're going to hell because you don't keep the law and all that kind of stuff. Just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac because Isaac had an inheritance, so do legalists persecute today. They persecute those who have a spiritual inheritance of freedom in Christ, and they're going to try to take it away from us. The Jews in every place in the Roman Empire persecuted the church until 8070 when their mother city was destroyed. Jesus has predicted this. He said they would persecute you from synagogue to synagogue, Matthew 23:34. Because of this, Jesus said, Behold, I send you to you prophets and wise men and and wise ones, and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues and will persecute from city to city. Jesus knew what the flesh does. He knew what the law does. He knew it would kill, kill his spiritual followers, his prophets and scribes, and wise men and scribes, wise men and scribes. We go to Galatians 4.30. But what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son, Paul continues, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Now the scripture he's quoting here is Genesis 21, 
10. So she, that Sarah, said to Abraham, Drive out this slave with her son, for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. So Sarah realized that little Hagar experiment didn't work out too good because now we've got strife between flesh and spirit, between Hagar and Isaac. So just as Sarah says, drive out Hagar, drive out Ishmael, drive out the law, stay away from the inheritance of God to Abraham, get, get out of here. So Paul is saying, the same thing to the Judaizers. Get out of the churches of Galatia. Go away. You have nothing to do with Christianity, with heirs of the promise. Present Jerusalem's children shall be cast out of the favor of God. The old covenant, the old Moses, plus the rabbinic system that was added to that. All that's gone now because the inheritance comes from the promise of God to believing Christians, both Jews and Gentiles. We go to Galatians 4, verse 31. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Paul is now summarizing the whole, his whole point here. His whole point of the whole book of Galatians really is, hey, we're not slaves, we're free. Children of the slave, that would be we're not Ishmael. Ishmael being put for a symbol for slavery to the law, saying that you have to be circumcised and keep the law in order to get saved, in order to get sanctified. No, we're not that kind of child anymore. We're children of the free woman, children of promise, the children of Sarah, the children of Abraham who believe, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. When Paul says, therefore, brothers, he's referring to all the facts of his little allegory. Look at all what I said about Sarah and Hagar. That proves, therefore, that we ain't children of no slave. We are free children of a free woman. So Paul finishes Galatians chapter 4. In our next chapter, chapter 5, Paul talks about freedom, freedom in Christ. First part of chapter 5 we'll take up in the next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one.